Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. I know who killed me, or Foucault and film criticism with labor, Kyle. <laughs> Bob just walking into rakes, and instead it's just me surrounded by various takes Ash has got. <laughs> like, oh, God damn it, it happened again. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> oh jesus so so i hit i hit the fun times record button so um yeah we'll just banter uh, for a bit and then we'll get into it let's do it ash um do you want to do you want to lead us into this episode or yeah 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 i i can definitely do that i think Come on, we're so good <laughs> we are so good at starting episodes of our show now right i don't know it's gone we spent it uh sorry sorry everyone yeah, we have, we've met our quota for jokes before we started recording, so... Well, thank, thank God, thank God we're not one of those, like, funny podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> imagine, imagine the burden to be a clown in these trying times. I do not envy the job. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I mean, this is what this is what I've always respected immensely about both of you, which is that you're deeply serious people. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's immensely... <laughs> I mean that's that's why Ash makes me watch things like Die You Zombie Bastards and uh just, Erotica. Just wait. <laughs> just, just wait. Oh, we had so much fun talking about that. I love that movie so much. I mean, we haven't even broken into Ron Ford's cinematography yet, so like Deadly Scavengers is on the menu. I'm so like this show is only gonna get better. Yeah, it really, it really depends on what, what metric you're using for better, but I completely agree. <laughs> hello, uh, hello everyone, welcome to the show. Um, if that made it into the episode, you've got some sneaky little clues about what's going on. Speaking of clues, uh, today today we're talking about one of the, the, the actresses that defines the American cinematic landscape, uh, a storied career rich in history, memory, and cultural value. Uh, we'll be we'll be touching on the work of Lindsay Lohan in this first part of a nine part retrospective. <laughs> uh, but yeah, John, how's it going? <laughs> I I am I am so excited. I'm so excited because I, I having watched this film, I kind of feel like there 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 okay. So there are films like made by A list Hollywood directors like Darren Aronofsky, which I watch and I'm I, I, I'm left feeling depressed and angry. Uh, because I know that we're going to have to talk about them. Um, and then there are films like this, which I watch, and I end up just so excited uh, that we get to do this incredibly uh, just vital piece of culture that we get to bring our insight and analysis to to something that I don't think enough people appreciate. No. <laughs> I can't wait for our, our upcoming episode on the Parent Trap. I think that's going to be great as well. Oh no, it's it's going to be it's going to be Herbie fully loaded. That's the one I'm really excited. <laughs> for. Uh, and we are joined today by the one, the only, the fantastic, the bemustached, the handsome Labor Kyle. How's it going, Kyle? It's going very well. This feels something of a homecoming. 
uh, as evidenced by the 35 minute improvisational conversation that happened before recording this podcast. <laughs> and, I mean, that that is overselling it. It was just Ash and me like banging on the table and going one of us, one of us <laughs> over and over again. But that's that's very kind of you to say, Kyle. Well, I'm just happy to be here. I like the show very much. I'm very vocal about this. Uh, and I also, uh, through personal relationships, like the two of you very much. So I'm happy to come here and bring uh, my A-game, so to speak, uh, in terms of both preparation as well as choice of film, uh, which a film which pulls no punches, I would say. Bringing bringing your A game for a B movie would be the greatest tagline for the show. <laughs> oh man, that's true. Um, for people who somehow are 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 not aware and yet listen to the show or follow either Ash or me on Twitter, um, do you want to kind of just explain a little bit about what you what you do on the online and why you are? on the list of YouTubers who are good. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I am a, something of an academic, I usually ID as an historian cause that's what my degrees are in and typically the type of work that I do. Um, so I do all of that sort of stuff in the same way that uh, all three of us have experiences and sort of in sort of this field, uh, in the humanities and as such. And, uh, I, I mostly talk about uh, sort of the intersections of contemporary culture and politics in uh, 20th century Italy. Um, I come from a classical studies background, uh, in ancient history specifically, um, and wrote a lot about the early emergence of religion. Um, and because academia is a uh, was was a shattered hellscape, and now is just a giant fucking crater in the ground. Uh, <laughs> that uh, I, I thought to s- start to take my skills to the uh, uh, aforementioned online and uh, started a YouTube channel uh, where I was just kind of, you know, throwing spaghetti in terms of ideas for a while and then sort of landed on uh, using, uh, basically using video games as metaphors for anti-capitalist readings of contemporary moments as well as some historical ideas as well. So I started making video content uh, about a year ago and over the past six months have sort of stayed on this uh, uh, mode of analysis because I just really like it (laughs) and people also really like it um, and have done, you know, uh, varying titles from, you know, horror games like Outlast 2, which is right now my most popular video and happens to feature uh, the two hosts of a podcast called Horror Vanguard. Um, uh, which I hear is pretty good. Uh, <laughs> it's, okay. it, it's all right. <laughs> it's for show, sure, yeah. <laughs> you didn't get the check plus, but you get the check. <laughs> uh, and, but yeah, I, uh, also work, um, in, uh, various other spaces outside of like horror media, but in general have always been interested in, uh, so, uh, culture and the way that it intersects with sort of contemporary theoretical concerns from the 20th century, usually continental philosophy, as well as Marxism, I would ID as something of a Marxist, uh, and uh, how it can both play with uh, 
uh, represents this interplay between anti-capitalist politics and culture, as well as um, sort of just theory with a capital T and learn, learning about sort of theoretical concerns of the 20th century and like post-structuralism, psychoanalysis, structuralism, those sorts of spaces. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, and yeah, I just like posting and making friends online and playing video games and uh, being underemployed and, you know, all the usual stuff that comes with academia. And then I just try and put content out that people would enjoy to see because I also like making weird art too. Yeah. That may sum it up. I don't know. Uh, you can, of course, follow Kyle on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube. Uh, and Twitch links to all of those uh, will be in the show notes. Please do it. Uh, Kyle makes great stuff, and we are—I we are both just so excited that you decided to come on the show. I really am pleased to be here. So you know, it's a politeness competition yet again, as always. <laughs> no, I'm What's pleased it? to be here. So one of the politeness competition, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash labor Kyle and surrender all of the bitcoins you just took from Bill Gates. <laughs> we know who you are. Um, okay. You, 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 segways, segways are weird. Um, <laughs> we, have, okay. we have finished the, we have finished the guest introduction section of the show. And now it's time. And now it's time. For everybody's favorite part of the show, which is where Ash introduces the film that we are talking about today, chosen, of course, by the, by our guests, Kyle, uh, Ash, as always, I mean, I don't know, you know, very boring, very straightforward, spoiler heavy mm. uh, film uh, recap. What are we talking about today, Ash? Yes, now, now that we finished point two, subsections A through E of our show notes. Uh, I, mo- I motion to move on to general business. <laughs> Second. <laughs> yes, now we're moving on to section three, wherein I read the back of the DVD. Identity, self-knowledge, the esoteric of truly knowing one's identity. Getting to know yourself is more than just a cliche. It's an arduous act. It's never quite as simple as merely understanding the network of errant impulses that makes up our lives. It's something deeper, an encounter with something unsettling, the other that is self. The mortifying ordeal of being known is a joke when it is about contact with people outside ourselves. The true horror only comes when we attempt contact with the self. The myriad twists and turns of our minds, the labyrinthian stores of memory, the dark corners of our hearts that make us wince. That is the path that must be walked to know the self. Near the core of the Sisyphean task is alienation. We often phrase alienation as the means by which capitalism divides human communities, how it forces us to fight amongst ourselves, but this division is also internal. The same machinery that subdivides, conquers, and grinds us up as collectives also grinds us up as bodies and minds. As the people of the world around us are ground into iPhones, Tesla batteries, and even the food we eat, so too are we wounded. We are the act of spitting teeth, coughing blood, of a body screaming for healing. This is a pain that can only be relieved with the salve of knowing comrades, our twins lost to the grinding gears of this world. The only class that can save us is our own, the working class. The downtrodden, the lost, the wounded, 
Our collective salvation lies not with a gifted embrace from on high, but through the act of being stitched back together, alive through spite and with the will to create a better world. Healing starts with the reckoning of the wound. Welcome to Lindsay Lohan's I Know Who Killed Me. Kyle, was it was it every was it everything that you had hoped for? It's like that was like it, it was like the it, it was it was the most it was the most Foucaultian thing I've ever heard for the most Foucaultian movie I've ever seen, and I mean that in the best way, the in the severity and the intensity of, in particular, the early works of French French uh, theorist Michel Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Now, it always kills Ash, but you know, come on. That was a good one. Oh, thank you. Now, now, before we get into um perhaps the best cinematic critique of philosophical Cartesianism from 2007 that I've ever seen. <laughs> I think <laughs> okay weirdly i'm not joking i actually believe that to be very true i know where you're i can tell where you're going with it already that's why it's so fucking funny <laughs> before we get into the anti-cartesian philosophy of Lindsay lohan let <laughs> let us as good as good marxists as good cultural critics let us uh follow the famous dictum of frederick jameson and historicize the shit out of this B movie. Um, <laughs> now, I th- now I, I imagine this is something that Ash um, uh, and Kyle probably know a little bit more about than me. So maybe for people who kind of not really come across this film, it is not very well known or well regarded. Can you maybe kind of explain a little bit about what this is? Yeah, so so this is a 2007 movie, and for those for those of you who are uh, Lohan fans, uh, Lohan revivalists, my fellow revivalists out there, um, Lindsay Lohan, famous famous child and teen star of of cinema in, in in the states, you know, The Parent Trap. We've got um, Mean Girls, the iconic Mean Girls, as Lindsay Lohan at her peak. Um, 2007. Was, is easily the down point in her career when this movie is being made, 2006 to 2007. Um, during the production of this film, Lindsay Lohan uh, has to get surgery for um, her appendix surgery. Mm-hmm. The uh, incision for the surgery gets infected, which pauses production again. Lindsay Lohan also checks into a rehabilitation facility during the production of this film. She's also injured on set during the production of this film, which pauses it yet again. And then once the movie comes out and she's about to do her press release, uh, she's arrested for um, drunk driving, which pauses and upsets the press rollout for this film. So it's it's really safe to call the production of this movie incredibly troubled in a way that other movies uh, like and like this movie is viewed as being generally poor, but it's poor for, I think, really different reasons. Right. You know, when we look at. Suicide Squad is an example. Suicide Squad had infinite money, some of the best talent in Hollywood behind it. Uh, uh, by by every right, that movie should have been at least entertaining, <laughs> but it is it is nothing but a gigantic tire fire. And that movie fails because of studio involvement and and too many clashing artistic goals and the inability for Warner to decide what to do with its properties. Whereas this movie fails 
in in large part because we are we're witnessing a working actress at probably her low point. And in in terms of the way that they constructed the film, and now I I don't want this to be a controversial statement necessarily, so I'm not making it. To, I'm not. It's not too uh, declarative, but. In contrast to a sort of these large pastiche, like big budget, often like defense department funded, like big, like, you know, green screeny action movies that make, you know, millions, sometimes billions of dollars uh, in this film is demonstrating something of intent <laughs> outside of. You know, it attempts to extract itself from a film-based pattern of consumption and do something, for lack of a better term, arty. <laughs> Which, like, you know, it, it, it's this is the film of accidental success uh, in my mind. It it's the film that is an incredible embodiment of its various contexts, environments. Uh, and influences and I don't think it was doing I think it, I don't I, I, I think 90% of the things that make it so incredibly interesting to me to the point where I've seen it a lot and have watched it over the past 10 years probably once a year maybe just like because I can't get it out of my head is that it it just has this Sorry, I, I, I lost my train of thought for a second. But basically, 90% of what makes this movie interesting is not what it's trying to do. <laughs> and <laughs> and the 10% that is just the stuff that's like, like, not, like you know, trying to be David Lynch, basically. Uh, and, you know, I think that makes it interesting because of it. it's these sort of like weird distillations or copies or whatever, how they sort of contain gesture but don't exactly duplicate it but that's for you know yeah. a, a, another point down our agenda for the meeting today <laughs> <laughs> and and this was ostensibly the film this was ostensibly the film that uh you know this is what everyone says it killed lohan's career um but i i i, I think that's a very one that's kind of reductive because clearly you know the production of this is troubled euphemistically um, and also, um, there's a whole myriad of other factors that are at play, you know, physical ill health, dealing with substance addiction issues, uh, DUIs as well. So I, I think it's, this is, this is one of those films where it's kind of like, I, I get what you mean, Kyle, it's trying to do an awful lot and it, it's, it's, it's failure in those attempts, which make it interesting. Mm hmm. I, I would say both the 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 the, the gestures uh, in the discourse that this film is embodying, without even really knowing it, as well as its attempts to do something that, like you know, is is sort of like cast in the mold of what these you know couple of people who are at the core center of the creation of this thing thought would be a good idea, and then I think in all I think in all honesty. It's like, I know who killed me is like, if a whole bunch of like, if someone took apart, took apart a bike and put all the parts on different hills and then threw them all toward each other. And when they all crashed into each other, <laughs> they built a bike. Now the bike is the tires are all skewed and like it all cr crashed into each other. So everything's bent and stuff, but it's technically a bike. 
and it looks now it kind of looks really interesting in its sort of like horror in its disfigurement if you if you will um and in the main thing that i want to just preface all of my statements with i think is that i think this is what part of what makes this movie so interesting is that it's very sadistic in the way that it treats its central characters um, in such a way that I think pushes back against the quote unquote rationalities of the con the various contexts and people and systems of knowledge uh, that are sort of interrogating the, what, what is happening to Lindsay Lohan almost both in the film and not to be, not, I, I, I could have drum rolled up to that. It's so cliche, but like in her actual life, in terms of this, the self, the self-fulfilling prophecy of Lindsay Lohan as on a downward trajectory based off of the system of knowledge of economic returns on a low budget movie mm-hmm. that was fraught with all of these production problems, as well as within the context of the characters to who uh, when Dakota as a character is trying to sort of convey that she's a different person or whatever, she gets interrogated constantly with these sort of systems of knowledge, be it in the hospital uh, where they suspect her of either lying or, or uh, as a result of PTSD has amnesia. That's also the movie doesn't know what amnesia is. Um, <laughs> like, like it doesn't that, understand. I, I, I really do think that's a very important point. <laughs> I think we, well, I mean, where do you start? Accurate. This this film does not know what amnesia is. Where you start with the amnesia, the the body switching, but not talking about it. Stigmata, you know, secret twins. Like this movie's incredible. <laughs> Seriously, it is so all over the map. And I really love your point about kind of like the cruelty that the movie expresses to um, Dakota Moss and the uh, twin of Dakota Moss. Um, and I think like, like there's, there are shots in this movie where you can actually see paparazzi in the background that were actively hounding Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. They were so aggressive to the point where they couldn't be kept off the set for a movie that was in production. Yeah. And, and there's this kind of like, you know, like the haunting twins within the film itself, there's kind of like, this haunting twinned reality, you know, where we have uh, a child actress star of stage and screen, Lindsay Lohan, and the Lindsay Lohan of contemporary Hollywood and TV production. Yeah, and we also have a moment in which uh, Lindsay Lohan literally digs her own grave, but mm-hmm. already finds a very similar looking face in the grave. Uh, like you can, you can, you can. So having that context, I, I think actually probably will help people appreciate this film even more in retrospect. Um, honestly, well, oh, uh, I was just gonna say, like, honestly, like as as a as like a Lindsay a Lindsay Lohan revivalist, like this film, this film is unintentionally and in retro. So this is this is uh, Jorge Luis Borges Kafka and his precursors, but it's Lindsay Lohan and her precursors. <laughs> It's unintentionally, it becomes prophetic in a way. I I think that's absolutely true. But um, whilst whilst Kyle was talking, um, you, Kyle, you said you said the um, the kind of trigger phrase, which I've had subconsciously implanted in Ash's brain, <laughs> uh, which is which is David Lynch. <laughs> 
you made the comparison to David Lynch. So um, I'm just going to quote directly from the from the show from our uh, doc that we have. It's time for the David lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new segment we're having here on the show where we where we eat lunch and talk about David Lynch. Uh, Ash, why why are we bringing Lynch into this com- conversation? Uh, well, the whys the why should be readily apparent. This movie is pretty actively trying to engage with David Lynch's cinematography. Um, uh, would it surprise anyone to know that the director of this film has said that his favorite film is Blue Velvet? And that his, his other favorite film is Psycho, the movie that influenced <laughs> Blue Velvet. <laughs> this explains literally everything. You can skip the rest of the episode. Blue Velvet, Psycho. If, if, if those words mesh together in your brain, you understand everything that's about to happen. <laughs> But no, no, yeah, like that's uh, that's kind of the beating heart of this movie is the plot is fairly conventional in a way. You know, it's 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 a noir. It's like a neo noir mystery, yeah. but the cinematography is baffling. It's so awesome in in the most kind of like att- attempting attempting to reckon with the aesthetic decisions of David Lynch uh, without without committing to the kind of nonsense you know like I'm, I'm always kind of drawn back to that uh david david lynch was in an interview once and and you know he just kind of like says oh as as we all know god is gay and then the interviewer is like oh could you elaborate on that and david lynch is like no no <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and there, there's a fortitude there that i think is necessary for the lynchian aesthetic yeah oh well there there's uh there there are so many things there's a subtlety to the lynching oh, yeah. <laughs> aesthetic, any amount of subtlety, like even just, just like, and I mean, the, the thing about Lynch is what he does so effectively is that he lays bare this sort of like these sort of like uh, la- layers of like social order. Um, and then how the people, how, how we use uh, communication and, and culture to sort of operate in, in these sort of horizontal and diagonal lines up and across these planes, this sort of like, not pre- not in necessarily like a Deleuzean sense of smooth space, but like sort, sort of that there, there are these sort of like intersecting p- portions of the way that society operates. And that when you like, when you, in, in, you walk in the back and you open up this curtain and you can peer into this place that you could kind of feel was there, but that you don't really know in terms of the level of its horror. And he tries to sort of like push you on that. And I know who killed me is instead of pushing back the curtain, they take out a blowtorch and light it on fire (laughs) and then just like walk in the back and start grabbing shit and throwing it out into the front. It is like, there is this thing. it, It is, it is in the Lynchian aesthetic but it is so incapable of subtlety that it takes all of what is hidden in a Lynchian film and that is slowly revealed to you um, in these intense and very sometimes very troubling sort of images. With this movie, it's just basically like they 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 set everything up uh like on a tread on a fucking treadmill and just start like dropping components on it and everything's flying everywhere and it's just like in like the okay the blue like <laughs> the, the, this this podcast was brought to you by the color blue like they're, they're everything that when you use blue as a metaphor for the killer well, oh sorry spoiler alert 
the 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 killer in blue. There's a connection there, but bl- everything is blue. Like it, like it, it is. It is the the collar on the cat to the trophy to the football team's uniforms to the like and so it is really kind of devoid of all meaning but in what i think is what i find so interesting about it is that's what it kind of is unintentionally doing that's so interesting it it, it's it's spilling out all of this stuff that's usually like subsumed by structure in a way but like as we sort of moved through our theoretical understanding of how the social world and how culture work, we see that there's these, like that people are traversing these boundaries and these limitations and that they're worthy of interrogation. Basically what, Mm. what this movie does is like demonstrates why we should interrogate culture. So, so closely Yes, is because it's this, like, it's this, uh, like piece together it's like i know who killed me is like if you watched blue velvet and then didn't watch it for 10 years and then tried to make it again but all you did during that 10 year period was binge drink like <laughs> if, if i can if i can borrow borrow a quote from roger ebert this the, the director of i know who killed me knows that lynch often uses blue lighting in his films but he doesn't know why <laughs> David Lynch uses blue lighting in his films. That's very well. Said. I completely agree. Like, like what's really fascin- weird and fascinating about Lynch is like a kind of spatial topographical ontology, right? So this idea of like you go into a place and you are introduced to a new way of being. And you, I really like that idea of kind of traversing through societal layers. It's it's very good. All of his work is really good at doing that. And the thing that I think is endlessly fascinating about Lynch's work is that it's not necessarily like, it has a morality, but it isn't moralistic. And I think this is the biggest failing of this film in trying to be Lynchian, is that in many ways, I think it 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 doesn't, it, I, rather, I think Lynch has an ethics, but he isn't a moralist, right? This, I think, is a moralist piece of filmmaking. Ooh, ooh okay. So now, now we're getting into areas that I think are really exciting about the color blue and moralism <laughs> in this film. Um, I actually, so at first, I was kind of aggravated by the color blue, right? Because it's it's a red herring for the killer. We see that the killer in this film uses custom made glass knives to to attack his victims, and they're all blue. Right. And then so when we see blue throughout the movie, it's it's red herrings baiting us in one direction or another, you know, like like her boyfriend gives her a blue flower. Her piano teacher, who winds up being the killer, has a blue ring. You know, the police wear blue. Her, her father has piercing blue eyes. You know, blue is everywhere. And, and at first I was like, OK, this is a really childish attempt to constantly throw us off where blue is. But then it occurred to me that there's kind of a, a more impactful reading of that. Right. So so what does what does Dakota Moss experience through the film uh, and so in, in the film there's dakota moss and aubrey fleming are two characters played by Lindsay lohan they were twins separated at birth dakota moss is a uh, kind of like a wild child right you know you know she she grew up in a really rough situation you know she's had to fend for herself ever since she was a kid where aubrey fleming grew up in a posh suburb and has basically been handed every opportunity for success so the kind of the kind of uh, uh, you know like I don't know the princess switch kind of story thing, 
But like what I find to be really interesting, right, is so the color blue is pervasive. It's everywhere. It's all parts of society. It's the flashing police, police lights. It's it's the truck that the gardener drives. It's her dad's eyes. It's everything, you know, and it, this kind of mirrors what Lohan's character goes through because the second Dakota Moss arrives at this hospital, she's gaslit by everyone. She's betrayed by everyone. No one is there to help her until the very end when somebody provides her a ride to get to the killer. And that is, that is the most help she receives in the entirety of the movie. What we're dealing with when we, when we approach the color brew from this angle is a recognition of systemic oppression, right? It's not just that there's one killer and he wears blue. It's just that we live in a blue system. We live in a system wherein suppression is system, oppression is systemic, right? If we read it as patriarchy, it is her father's eyes. It is the affection of her boyfriend. It is the presence of the police. It is the football team. Those are all manifestations and uh, flag bearers of patriarchal violence. And that is the enemy for Lohan's characters in this film. So yeah. listen. I, yeah. Mm, I love that silence. <laughs> There's a there's a, there's a lot to the use of the blue, uh, it, in in terms of its heavy handedness. But I think what you, I think what's very interesting about what you said, Ash, and something that I've written down is the idea of what the movie is trying to get us to do necessarily. Because I here's the thing: I, I feel like this is a movie that is a, that kind of hates its characters. Um, not in actually a, in actually in kind of a productive way. I'll explain that in a second. But and that is, for lack of a better term, and I apologize if this is too intense of a term, it's fairly abusive towards its central protagonist. But and the reason why is I feel as though, and I I, I wrote about this in sort of the document that we were sharing, talking about uh, this film before we started recording, is the idea that there are these clear binary structures that are being interrogated in portions of this movie. And the easiest one to look at is the subjectivity, the changes of subjectivity experienced between the Aubrey and Dakota characters, who in many ways just kind of represent a binary split of the subject, basically. And, and, that, and that, that, that bifurcation is being interrogated by various modern bodies of knowledge that not gonna lie kind of go straight through like portions of Foucault's phases of subjectification <laughs> like the, yeah, yeah. the first portion being sanity in terms of madness like in uh, madness and civilization uh, in interrogating the epistemologies of the, of the uh the medical uh field um and how like they basically they they were spending all of their time uh, like yelling at her for lying and trying to figure out how to connect amnesia that makes you forget who you are in PTSD. Like, and, and, and this is a point and I was going to go through, but actually there's a point that I want to just very quickly bring up because otherwise I'll go on about it forever. Um, I, I, I feel like this is a very like intensely negative film uh, in terms of it's it, with, with exception for the very, very end of it, which I think actually, sort of has this weird like upward trajectory just for a, a, a moment that you can kind of see yeah, applauded. But, uh, and that it's otherwise a very cruel, very detached, very like kind of alienating film. Um, and in, in the way that there's, the, the, 
Okay, I'm just going to cut to the chase. So in the series finale of the TV show Full House, Michelle, the the uh, one of the Olsen twins, falls off a horse <laughs> and uh, gets the same kind of fake TV amnesia that uh, they think Dakota has as a result of PTSD. Um, thinking, well, the, yeah, the the when at some point in the film, Aubrey is kidnapped. And then by the killer, and then she turns up, clinging to life, and then ends up in the hospital. And uh, she wakes up, and she all of a sudden embodies this character, this person named Dakota Moss instead. Um, interesting character names. Uh, <laughs> that was a, a little a heavy-handed noir thing, I think. But uh, mm-hmm. um, and what happens is that everyone all decides that now we're going to be mean to this woman. Who woke up with, with a, like a, in a, what we think is a completely different identity? There is an a, first in the um, they claim that she has PTSD and that she's sick, and then in terms of the police and FBI investigation into this, there is always an implied sense of criminality. And I believe the reason why yes. it seems like what it's showing us is that there's this neat bifurcation between criminality. Insanity, like between uh, lawfulness and criminality, and insanity and sanity, that is represented by the transitions and the the problems that these characters encounter. Encounter, and that what the film is trying to get us to do is to sympathize with and to believe Aubrey and Dakota at the same time. Aubrey, the person who's going to Yale, who has piano lessons, who lives in that big bougie fancy house or whatever, and Dakota, who is the most hyperbolically written like down on their luck character who's just a binary opposite and then as it turns out there is a there's a sense of unity between these opposites that falls outside of the body of knowledge that people are trying to use to interrogate this splitting of the subject um i I blacked out for like five minutes apologies You you entered a trance state and went to the plane of just perfectly beautiful theories. So thank you for that. <laughs> it's, it's, and, Lindsay takes me there. And, and <laughs> yeah, I I I agree, but I think that 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 I don't know whether I don't know whether the film is able to get past the the moral archetypes that it puts on these characters, and I think in a way that kind of hamstrings what it's trying to do. But yeah, I can I I completely agree with like the Foucaultian dynamics here. You know, you start in school, then you go to the the medical uh, institutions, you go to the insane asylum that judges you, then you go to the legal and and um, carceral institutions that police your criminality. There is a kind of very um, clear progression of the development of subjectivity under um, you know a a, a systems of surveillance and control the control society that Deleuze and Guattari would write about so yeah I could I, I I I'm totally on board with you in in terms of the, what's so interesting in like this is a I wrote down a quote from the movie and uh it, this is and something that we can that we I think plan to talk about at some point this is not a very uh, the dialogue in this movie is not very nice to sex workers uh people who have drug addiction problems uh, sex workers again, yeah. uh, and then sex workers one more time, uh, and then people <laughs> with disabilities about ten times after that. Um, so, like all of the the readings are, you know, like 
plainly in spite of this and something that we can discuss. But at one point, after she gets after she has a couple of decent experiences, there's a physical therapist who calls her by her name Dakota when everyone else is calling her Aubrey and is really pissing her off. Um, and who seems to be generally sympathetic. It's, a, I think, the first good interaction she seems to have with somebody. Everyone's just too busy yelling at her and saying, you're lying, like, which is so blatant and interesting to me. But The physiotherapist is my favorite character. <laughs> I mean, he's just... Oh, oh we'll, get, we'll get into him in just a second, yeah. <laughs> but uh, at one point, she's sitting in a, chair, in a chair and looking at herself in the mirror in an attempt to embody all of the shit that people are telling her is true, is knowledge, is absolute. And she looks at herself she says my name is Aubrey Fleming I enjoy sunsets long walks on the beach and playing the piano here's where the part gets I don't like saying it I have never seen the inside of a strip club or a crack house I have never sold my body to hairy old men with BO because I am perfect and if that is not a demonstration of the attempts to the internalization of you know uh, power knowledge uh, these sort of these systematized bodies of knowledge that tell you who you are, who is sane and who is insane that are and that then project themselves as these like thoroughly modern, thoroughly like generous, like progressive institutions that really repackage and, and force us us as human subjects to internalize these contradictions and these problems. And then we become these sort of split subjects between who we are and who people tell us we're supposed to be. And we just kind of move around in this like sloppy mess uh, the whole time. And I think that statement that she says, like she literally says, like I am, I am the embodiment of this thing that I am not in two sentences and says, because I Mm -hmm. am perfect in contrast to her imperfectness. It's just like obnoxiously on the nose, but also kind of fun to look into. (laughs) So, so, oh my God, there's so much, there's so much in what you just said to, to comment on, but I'm going to, I'm going to choose my jumping off point as Eddie Steeples. Eddie Steeples is the actor who plays Saeed, the prosthetic tech. Um, the only character to just openly accept that Dakota Moss is who she claims she is. Everyone in this world demands that she's actually Aubrey Fleming. But what I find to be really interesting about the split between Aubrey and Dakota is that it is purely and exclusively on class lines. They're both artists, they're both performers, they're both very sexual, right? But one of them manifests those things through this low-class, quote-unquote, dirty way of doing it, and the other one manifests it through high-class ways. Aubrey plays classical piano, Aubrey makes flirtatious winks at the gardener, right? You know, Aubrey Aubrey exists in all those same spaces where Dakota... And you can even see this in their naming, right? Dakota versus Aubrey. Dakota mm-hmm. is is a uh, pole dancer. Dakota is a sex worker. Dakota embodies all of the same things that Aubrey embodies, but on the other end of class politics. And I think that that becomes really interesting for analyzing the divide between these characters, right? And like the reason why the FBI won't believe Dakota and don't trust anything she has to say about herself is purely because of class, right? Like Dakota is just dripping with every possible class signifier for being poor, right? You know, we've got we've got drug addiction. We've got like, you know, she's swearing all the time. She's using crude language. She's openly sexual. She's dressing in, you know, like more revealing clothing. 
You know, she's doing everything the way that Aubrey would not be doing it. And even we have the scene where she has sex with her boyfriend. The whole the whole point of that scene is for Aubrey to express her identity in one of the few ways that she's been able to do so throughout the text of this film, right? You know, she's she's clearly outlawing that like, oh, you're, you know, like Aubrey wouldn't have fucked you this way is I think one of the lines that she says. Mm. And that's specifically to outline this class distinction, right? Because a high class person wouldn't fuck. High class people don't fuck. The rich can't fuck. It's a well-established science fact. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Yeah, flip open any science textbook. It's on page one. But you, you get what I'm saying. They li- they have to light a ceremony. They light a ceremonial candle and put it two on the same table and then watch it while it burns out. That's what they do instead of fucking. <laughs> <laughs> this this actually actually kind of links to what I was saying about how I think this film is often kind of quite moralistic in how it treats its characters. And I completely agree with you. I think that class distinction is there, but that class distinction is, um, is, ex- is explicitly linked to a kind of moral positioning as well. Right. You know, uh, Dakota working as a stripper and coming from a background of drug addiction and poverty is not, is not framed in dryly economic terms. It's morally bad as well. And that's because that's that's a kind of bourgeois middle class morality, right? Class mm-hmm. position because because rich middle class people don't have any 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 uh, understanding of of materialism, um, it it gets transposed into the terrain of morality and ethics, right? So it's not that um, working class people are um, more prone to experience poverty and are often turn to sex work because it's um one of the few realms of economic activity that can generate enough money to pay for things it's because they're bad people you know that's that's the kind of discourse that's happening here along with that class analysis that you put forward yeah i I think that i think that ties back into the use of the color blue in this film right like we are we are trapped within a bourgeoisie mentality in the text of this film Right. Yeah. This, is, this, is, this is why no one can love or trust Dakota Moss and everyone immediately without question to trust Aubrey Fleming. Um, and, you know, to put it in, in like Lynch would never make the argument that, you know, poor working class people are bad because they do sex work. All right. They, it, Lynch would never make that um, equivocation, right? That this person is bad and, and not trustworthy precisely because they're poor and they come from this background but would but would but would kind of would make the point that actually it's often those that uh kind of put on a performative moralism that are most prone to having secrets that they don't want exposed which this film tries to do but it can't quite commit to the whole bit (laughs) that's there's what you've both brought up is the I mean, if we're sticking on the food, the, the Foucaultian reading, spoiler alert, the Foucaultian reading works literally too well to the point where <laughs> I'm just like, I have other shit I want to talk about. But God, this just fits. It fits too well. The idea in like the birth of the prison f- doesn't just discuss the ways in which that. Oh, oh God, you have both been on the business end of my rant, Foucault, Foucaultian rants. Uh, I don't consider myself a Foucaultian for the record, but in history, we use him a ton. He's really influential. In my theory class for my master's, we had two weeks on Foucault, the only person we had two weeks on. Uh, but there, uh, 
the thing the thing with Foucault and the thing with when you're talking about pr- the birth of the prison, he's not just talking about the predominance of like the social space of the prison, like the creation of the institutions with walls that we see as prisons, but he's also talking about the a predominance of a shift in our understanding of disciplining the body. And the idea is that there's the, the, the most famous quote is uh, the, the soul is the prison of the body, la prison du corps. Like it, it's, it's the soul is the essences and the culture and the signifiers. And in, in many ways, including in this film, just the, the affect of a particular class in this instance. I also agree for the record that the class sort of, it really hits you over the head with kind of a class thing in this very sort of like in this very kind of like, like sure of itself, sure in its like goofy oppositional binaries to one another, like the op, like it, it doesn't embody the sort of everything between Aubrey and Dakota Aubrey on one hand is the person who has to quit playing the piano because she's too good and she doesn't have time to compete all the time because she won the young Mm -hmm. artist competition or whatever in order for her to focus on her writing, which based off the etude we heard and based off of the little bit of her writing that we heard, I think she should stick to the piano personally, but (laughs) that's maybe not her best best choice. She's an okay writer, but the, the point being that, the essence of Aubrey is imprisoning Dakota when she, the body itself is more of an arbiter of the essence than uh, of the self with her rather than the objectification that has come from an otherizing gaze to her as a sex worker, to her as a working class person with all the working class signifiers and coming by them honestly. She's like, it's written in cliché. So she's confrontational, she's foul-mouthed, all of this stuff. Like, I come from a working-class family and no one swears, but that's because they're teetotalers and they're very they're Christians and religious people. So there's this, like, embodiment of these particular class signifiers uh, that are just very blatant and obvious that it sort of, in the absence of all of the stuff in the middle, I think we can recognize that there's this attempt to sort of mash these two characters together the like i said earlier the movie's trying to get us to believe them at the same time rather than all of the people who just keep trying to figure out what amnesia is and then to like (laughs) essentially like merge their essences and they do that also through like have we brought up the fact that they get stigmata yet uh, yeah, no, we should, we should we should talk about the stigmata. Yeah, we haven't we haven't talked we haven't talked about the magic yet. Yeah, oh, so much! This is the most magical movie I've ever seen. Um, I actually I think I think talking about the stigmata is kind of tied into a bigger conversation, which is maybe where we should kind of lead up to the stigmata, mm. which is talking about subjectivity and how this film thinks of to put it in the language of Foucault again, how this film thinks of the subject. Uh, And I said at the beginning that this is a clear critique of Cartesianism, uh, which, which it totally is. Uh, Do not, do not push me on that. Um, (laughs) But maybe we can start there. Like how do you, what kind of ways can we read 
how because I I have a particular way of reading how this film constructs the subject, but maybe both of you have your own different takes on this. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think I think I'm going to enter this conversation by way of taking a step back and doing a little doing a little dialectical magic. Uh, so, so take, take taking the, uh, two arguments put forward by you two, um, about like class and identity and character and doing a little synthesis. So the original ending of this film, which is included in the DVD as a bonus extra, <laughs> uh, features, uh, a reveal at the end that this is all a story written by Aubrey Fleming. Aubrey Fleming wrote the entire thing. It's, a uh, it's, it's like a, um, frame narrative right this is all just Aubrey Story's fictitious telling of of her twin and her twins trials and tribulations but I think it like and it was ultimately cut because test audiences were like okay that's way too cliche um but I think what that reveals to us is a little bit about kind of how this movie goes about constructing identity because we see through the course of this film, like Dakota Fleming's character is the most bourgeoisie construct of a down on their luck working person mm-hmm. possible. Absolutely. 100%. Yes. I've ever seen. Yeah. It's, it's like, like, Oh, what, what, what are the poor people like? Oh, they're all drug addled sex workers with no morals and of ill repute. It's the most classist way of imagining a, a person from the lower classes. Uh, I just, for the record, I'm not, I'm not shocked. Yeah, and when we find out in this ending, right, that it's because this person was literally the fantasy of some bourgeoisie (laughs) student. It actually, it's like, it makes a lot of sense. When I read about it, I'm like, well, shit. This is is some layers on this thing, I I think. (laughs) A few. Yeah. I, I can so yeah. You know, go ahead, John. I, I I was just gonna say like I actually I actually don't kind of hate a lot of what it's trying to do with the relationship between Aubrey and Dakota. I mean, it's clearly the first and I think thus far the only screenplay that the writer has ever produced. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it is it is deeply classist in how it thinks about. Oh, oh! What are poor people? What is this like? <laughs> I don't know because none of them exist in LA. Um, but there is this kind of like idea that subjectivity in late capitalist modernity is something which clings to the notion of a Cartesian subject, something that's coherent. You know, so when Dakota turns up and goes, "Who's Aubrey? What are you talking about?" I'm i'm not them their only response is you're lying and obviously that's tied into the connection between capitalist society and those various institutions that kyle was talking about but at the same time capitalist modernity also requires i mean zygmunt bauman called it liquid modernity right this idea that what it requires is a liquefied subjectivity so you become whoever you are told you have to be in order to kind of exist in the world. So you put on your, this is kind of immediately and self-evidently obvious to anyone who's ever worked in the service industry in any industry, in any aspects of it whatsoever, you become who you're told that you have to be right. Who are any of us really in under capitalism, if not for the product of various kinds of positionality within these wider policing and, and disciplinary discourses 
that capitalism uses to kind of keep the whole thing moving there's uh it really is like in, in turn particularly the way that you both sort of like analyze its reading of what what poor mean uh like which it's like it's like if someone tried to create a working class character by watching like six episodes of looney tunes while standing on top of their head like it just it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense and only in terms of it's like like almost un, seemingly unconscious gestures because i think that this person was like yeah this is like this is like a someone who comes from, you know, really rough background. And I, I think, I think they it's so raw. There's so much earnestness in this movie. <laughs> Guys, let's get real. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, it is, it's a, it's a sitting in a backwards chair at a dare meeting of a character. Like it's a pure cautionary tale, but I remembered, and this is something that uh, I, I apologize. I had to loop back around to this because I ramble so much that I realized that I didn't get to the most important point that I have to bring today, which is how this movie relates to the television show Full House. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a character played by uh, a character named Michelle in this '90s sitcom uh, that is played by Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, and you know, like a, they they switch them in and out, but they both play the same character. Um, in the series, series, series finale of this show, the series finale, I always forget. This was the final two episode arc of this show. Michelle goes on horseback riding and falls off and hits her head and gets amnesia. Uh, and she, she, it's the same kind of weird TV amnesia. That's just, everyone wakes up and they go, who are you? Who am I? And like, like, I think Michelle even forgot who she was as a person while like in this case, they thought it was amnesia, <laughs> but as it turns out, it was a, a a magical body switching incident that gave no indication besides the fact that a person was found. There's a distinct difference between the like neoliberal optimism of Full House, which it really is in terms of a show. I have eight million things to say about Full House for the record. Uh, I need to start a podcast, and uh, <laughs> uh, and as well as. Uh, along, alongside of the absolute like like attempts to the, the the only attempts to sort of clean the optimism in this movie are in my opinion at the very least so profoundly overshadowed by its pessimism its like cruelty it's sort of like like its demonstration of the insufficiency and the incompatibility with of these various structures and individuals that keep emerging and re-emerging as new embodiments of their environments and this sort of like thoroughly modern quote unquote sensibility and rationality while not actually being able to reconcile this split subjectivity when it's put in front of their face in contrast in full house Michelle, when she becomes uh, when she uh, gets amnesia, she kind of becomes like this weird little sage that like walks around to the family and like helps them with their various problems as they're wrapping things <laughs> up. Even though she doesn't remember who any of them are, she's like, "Well, DJ, maybe you should go see him." D I remember DJ, her older sister's having like her romance story is wrapping up. I think uh, with the guy that she's been on and off with for several seasons at that point. 
And uh, she like, and then eventually she just like becomes herself again. She reemerges unhurt and unchanged because the system is able to both reconstruct her into this individual person as well as reconstruct itself. In contrast to this movie, this movie is doing everything it can to show you that these apparent like sort of that the 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 singularity the subjectivity of the petite bourgeoisie that is the tanner family from full house has demarcations and boundaries to where it has also internalized contradictions and like problems that can be really shown very easily as evidenced by say our current contemporary moment um, and it's much more reflective of this sort of pessimistic attitude that like in spite of trying to, you know, embody the self in some like way that that sort of circumvents neoliberal rationality or whatever or capitalist realism or whatever, like we are internally and very cruelly, cruelly bound to our historical contingency. And this movie is reminding over and over again that like you are contingent upon X, Y, and Z in your space of experience. And if you declare your identity or your understanding or your own space of experience that exists outside of this hegemony, then we are going to, the, the systems of knowledge and power will then try and reforce a discursive shift in you until you appear subsumed under the dominant discourse which is represented by when the scene that I mentioned earlier, when she's sitting in the hospital and she's just trying, I'm Aubrey, I'm this perfect person who hasn't done all of this nasty, bad, like awful stuff, even though it's not true. Um, and it just reminds me very much. It is very moralistic in a lot of ways. And it also is very bleak. And it also mm. just like represents this, th th this sort of fundamental problems of post-modernity. I got to stop talking. I apologize. No, I, I'm, I'm so excited right now because everything you've said has reminded me of something I wrote down whilst watching this film, which is about the stigmata. Okay, so because, because this film can only uh, consider subjectivity in binary disciplinary terms and any violation of it gets, gets kind of policed uh, in, in violent and often cynical and, and bleak uh, language as a reflection of capitalism, the only way that it admits of a kind of subjective multiplicity or an ontology that is not strictly reductive, the, what's the solution? How do we get out of that? Um, how do we get out of that kind of ontological trap we've landed in? And this is so 2007 because the solution is the stigmata. And it's really striking that... Um, so stigmata is a kind of is explicitly a, a a theological and catholic phenomenon right so but in the context of this film it's kind of packaged as like welcome to this world of mis it's like an it's like a it's capitalized mysticism right primarily because uh uncommodified uh mysticism or religious experience has a kind of liberatory potential that this film can't admit existing but that's a very 2007 thing right what's the solution to your ontological crisis we will sell you some feel-good mysticism that explains things for you because that's the only way that's the only way we can go oh yeah maybe the subject isn't this either or distinct binary that we have 
rigidly enforced and disciplined you when you try and break out of. So my hot take is the use of stigmata is a reflection of this film's commitment to capitalist realism. <laughs> Ash, what do you think? <laughs> as as the resident HV hot take expert, how do how do how does Kyle and my takes stack up? How are we doing? <laughs> You're both completely accurate. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't think I have any. Um. Uh, uh, to yeah. Right. To, to 20, 20th dimensional derailings for both of your takes. I think those are completely after reads of like. Like I really dislike like the second I, I watched that deleted ending where where it's the big reveal is that Aubrey Fleming wrote Dakota Moss into existence, like it was the most revelatory moment. It was like this whole thing could have been nothing more than an exercise in capitalist realism. This is all the fantasy of some bourgeoisie child that we have been subjected to. And, and every part of the movie can't escape that, yeah. which I find to be incredibly startling, except for one part of the movie that I think incidentally flies free and, and becomes its own being. And that's the naming of Dakota, Dakota Moss and Aubrey Fleming, because we get, we get Fleming's last name is Flem. She, she's, she's disgusting. She's vile. She's the product of sickness and Dakota Moss, Dakota. It's, it's a beautiful stretch of land. Moss is a wonderful part of our environment that we need to cherish, even though we tend to see it as some kind of mold Right. And so in the naming of these characters, we get like an expression of resistance to the rest of the film. I, I am I'm losing my mind. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you could we could take that further. Right. Moss is rhizomatic. Uh, it grows <laughs> in, in ways beyond the. the, oh, the I've got, I've got some rhizome shit in here. <laughs> Dude, literally that got a spit take out of me i want, I want that i want this on the record <laughs> <laughs> okay um, so so kyle uh lindsey lohan and deleuze and guitar <laughs> <laughs> well in general i think like there's this intersection of like when you encounter the the way that i see it if you're if you're examining foucault in one way What's important to know about him is that in his work, there is this uh, sort of transition. There's this sort of phasal development that he kind of stands with either leg on other, on one side or the other for theory, uh, sort of theory with a capital T and then the 1960s and 70s and then a little into the 80s. It's the transition from structuralism to post-structuralism, meaning that structuralism in the sense of uh, uh, the anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss, for example, uh, an examination of the similarities and differences between like any particular discourse or portion of society or, you know, cultural discourses or whatever that like these contribute to these sort of systematized bodies of thought um, that influence the social world and particularly influence culture, which was it, it, this, the, probably the most notable uh, uh theorists from these from the structuralist group for your listeners at least would be the marxist structuralist so louis althusser um and nikos palazzos is another lesser known example uh um first in some circles but uh it, it post-structuralist thought 
um, of which Foucault was definitely a part um, of in the transition of it seeks to turn around and interrogate those oppositional binaries um, in various ways through the interrogation of language, uh, like in the case of Jacques Derrida, um, and uh, through the uh, uh, interrogation of literature and authorial uh, intent, for example, um, as well as what Foucault does, which is sort of historical, what he, well, he, what he defines as ar- various archaeologies um, and genealogies. Um, basically, a, a sort of intellect, a kind of like thinking history, a kind of intellectual history that's not focused on individual people, but rather on systems of thought and the way that they change over time. So Foucault really contributed both to the analysis of the structure and interrogating the structure for its contradictions and its its difficulties. Then he went on, to, Foucault went on to be in conversation with um, particularly Guy Deleuze, the uh, French philosopher who's known for all the rhizome posting that everyone always says, this doesn't make any sense and this is annoying, stop it. And then you, I just got a Deleuze post. Um, but <laughs> he's Guy Deleuze, as well as uh, uh, the uh, someone who's kind of well-known, Antonio Negri, uh, but who's, Foucault's theories of power have gone on to influence both of them. Deleuze wrote a book on Foucault. He was Deleuze was really the first major philosopher to do uh, an, to do to directly engage with an analysis of Foucault's work on its own. Um, and part of what's so influential within this context is that power is predicted uh, by Deleuze and in collaboration with the French psychoanalyst uh, Felix Guattari. Um, published all of these books again that you know people ship post about on Twitter that discuss <laughs> ideas around uh, that essentially like basically Deleuze and Guattari are like they like they're like the black pill of that sort of portion of psychoanalysis and contemporary continental philosophy because like it's not in terms of like that the, the they're pure doomers or whatever but that they just kind of go ape shit on everybody. And they just like they're just like they're here to shit post and almost only to shit post. So they're just sorry, like they start coming after, you know, Jacques Lacan and they start interrogating certain elements and altering and changing and expanding on certain elements of Marxism. And they find Foucault relatively influential or in conversation with their work because they discuss these ideas of these uh, sort of these spaces of power that can either be more fixed on lines or more smooth like the ocean that intersect with and intervene on one another and alter and change one another. I mentioned Antonio Negri. He, he talked about the way that contemporary economics under neoliberalism does this. Speaking of plugging that out last video, it, it uses Negri quite a bit who I agree with like, you know, 60% of the time for the record. But uh, basically the idea of uh, doing Applying any level of Deleuze to this film, I think, exists within the a genealogy of Foucault's work on its own, because you see how for, when the split in the body switching happens, uh, Dakota is interrogated by institutions of medical knowledge and they're not able to come up with an explanation. She's interrogated and accused, always accused as guilty by uh, institutions of policing and control. Um, she is seen in, as an embodiment of a binary opposition between good, not too sexual, not too chaste, and uh, like 
uh, ant, sort of like anti-bourgeois sexuality that's blatant, that's uh, still very historically contingent and pretty offensive to sex workers, but that is in and of itself an attempt to reassert a uh, sort of power back at the dominating ideals that keep sort of impeding themselves on her as a subject, as well as on the people who are around her, who then internalize those systems of knowledge and power and then reinforce it among themselves and among each other. So basically it all comes back to, again, power. I sound like a Foucault and I promise I'm not, but the, 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 there is a sense of logic and a sense of modernity to the systems of knowledge that are not explaining who this Dakota person is, why she has stigmata, why she appeared, why why she's claiming that she's someone's uh, twin. Oh, wait, it turns out she is a twin. How did the, they get separated? And then how she can sort of, again, spoiler alert, basically psychically communicate with her twin so she can go find her and rescue her. Like, what what is what is it about this? And what I notice is that there seems to be these it's the it's what Foucault takes some influence from Friedrich Nietzsche in terms of his critiques. And this is part of the very Nietzschean part of Foucault, I think, that the only like the uh, the unsystematized pre-modern bodies of knowledge are the ones that are revealing themselves as truth to us in this film. Because, again, I, I think the movie's trying to get us to believe the characters at every single point, uh, what, what, no matter what they're telling us. And it uses an old, like literally a word that like, you, stigmata, you learned a Greek word today. It's Greek. It mean it's plural for stigma. Uh, it, it's, it come, it, Greek gave it to Latin and then Latin gave it to everybody else. Um, it's a very old, and as John said, it's a theological term. And it also represents a conflict between, I, I was just like Googling stigmata in the same way that she did. You know, she asked Jeeves about <laughs> stigmata. <laughs> uh, I, I did that earlier too, just to see what it would come up. Uh, and I started looking into it and they were talking a lot about how scientists have studied stigmata. Um, and well, what this movie is, sub in, in the critique that it's embodying is this idea that the systematized knowledge is going to give the answer for this body, what is legitimately a body switching incident between secret psychic stigmatic twins. Uh, and the, all the movie presents you with are the sort of like, first of all, the bleak idea that like, if you exist outside of the body of knowledge, say in terms of s sexual orientation, which is a big part of Foucault's work, um, that you are going to be otherized and attempted to quote unquote fixed like to think about uh, conversion therapy as a as a uh, exemplification of the dangers of these bodies of knowledge. Um, those are the kinds of things that Foucault, as a, a queer man, experienced. Um, and and ultimately, the only like tiny little bit of hope the movie lets us cling to is the characters finding one another at the end. And the theatrical ending, like just sort of like like gazefully staring into the future. Like, what the, like, are you playing, I, I want to know if the movie is playing a joke on me. The other thing I can ever figure out about the movie is whether it hates me. I don't think it hates me. I think it's too earnest. <laughs> <laughs> I think then we should talk about the ending. We should talk about uh, the piano teacher. We should. Um, Ash. <laughs> what do you think about, what do you think about the piano teacher being... Uh, again, spoilers, obviously, being uh, the uh, the killer with the fondness for customizable glass weaponry. 
Uh, he should be killed, as he is in the course of the film. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so so the piano teacher, I think, represents something that I would find very interesting in our metatextual conversation in this film. Right, the the piano teacher is a gatekeeper of wisdom for the upper class, and he's teaching. He's not teaching Aubrey jazz piano. He's not teaching Aubrey how to play Prokiev. Right, he's te- he's teaching Aubrey a very safe, very easy to receive uh, a mode of kind of classical in quotes piano. And I think I think there's a larger there's a larger representation there because what because Aubrey Aubrey's inverse dark side is also is also an, a, a young artist learning her craft. Right, she's a dancer, <clears throat> and dance is art no different than music in in that raw kind of sense. So the dark inversion then of of our piano teacher makes abstract glass art, you know. And in, in addition to being a piano teacher, he's also a, an expert glass artist, apparently. <laughs> but like, instead of making like beautiful stained glass murals or, or or things that the bourgeoisie would find to be very acceptable, he's making like twisted knives and implements of torture and these things were like, were they not being made by a serial killer, it would be less easy to find them in the halls of the bourgeoisie and you would find them in some like obscure pornography or Etsy store or something. But I find that the fact that we kind of have to like, you know, kill this character, you know, we have, we have to kill this flag bearer for kind of these bourgeoisie ideologies and values in order for the story to progress, you know, kind of, kind of the ultimate emblem of a lot of these ideas we've been talking about, about how the bourgeoisie construct and build their ideologies of what poor people are like. Like this character has to be done away with. We have to do away with this kind of canonical thinking in order for the Aubrey-Dakota split to, to be whole again, right? You know, the one of the ultimate goals of any kind of like left project is to destroy class as a concept, to be a society without class. And this ultimate reunification of both halves of Aubrey you know, this this gazing forward into an unknown future because it has never been known is something about this movie I find really compelling. Mm. Yeah. In short, is is uh, I Know Who Killed Me an example of uh, a real extant full communism? Discuss. <laughs> uh, Kyle, what do you think? Well, I think... Uh, <laughs> I just think so many things because just to remind everyone, we're watching. I we watched. I know who killed me. I did this to all of you. You're welcome. It, talk, talk about the, <laughs> talk about discipline and punish. Eh? Waka waka waka. Um, yeah, we were uh, we were we were waiting for that one. Um, I think there is. Uh, I think that's absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely fair considering the original fucking ending. Where she she wrote out the she killed the character off, like that like this is this is it's debased it's violent but the wrong kind of violent like there's only one kind of violence and it's like there's not like you know, you know I I'm not you know constantly run around trying to tell people what they say is violent or isn't violent but I think I think there's I think the level of trauma that would come from someone who was found half alive in a ditch getting yelled at by cops and doctors for multiple days as she loses limbs and has to learn how to walk and stuff like that would be traumatizing enough to be considered violent but it's all you know it's cool you know that's the doctor and that's the you know like 
it, and it's it's what I find so honestly like I, I there's a portion of the alien of the way that the film alienates you through its heavy handed sort of like like declaration of the like incorrect identity that Dakota is embodying rather than who, the, her idealized depiction of Aubrey. Shall we actually, shall we talk about, as we kind of wrap things up, let's talk about, um, we talked about the sex work angle a little bit, but I also think we should talk about how this film treats disability. Yes. Because, man, this is weird. This is, this is mm-hmm. such the kind of, this is like the neoliberal ideal of, dealing with a physical uh, disability which is that um, you get phantom limb pain once, you get a perfect prosthesis um, which you you learn to walk in 20 minutes when the nice technician helps you it never interferes with any of your physical activities um, you know your, your sex life doesn't have to change at all uh, the world is completely 100% accessible Um and I think this kind of goes back to an old point that we talked about a lot on our HV, which is like for the rich, literally every problem except one is solvable through the application of money, especially in the context of the US healthcare system. You know, obviously that's there too. Um, but I think I think the way that this this film treats um disability and, and losing limbs is so kind of weird and I do think is tied up with its uh, links to the historically dominant horror form at the time, which is torture porn. Um, I don't, I don't know if I have a kind of super well articulated take on it. What do you both think? Well, I think, I think the way that I'll just touch briefly on it, but I think the way that it discusses disability is almost quite litty. Like first of all, that you're, you're absolutely right, John, the way that, it sort of like the, the the prescription for the problems is so absurd um, and so completely like unrealistic and ridiculous, but it in fact ends up sort of like embodying the lived gestures of the experiences uh, like in its oppositional force. Like it's sort of like it's what the movie is doing on accident as always is giving body to the negativity that is, disability but that body that it's giving is uh like based off of sort of the 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 neoliberal contemporary conceptualization of the solution in ails to disability in this idealized and as always very ham-fisted or heavy-handed even way um and i yeah it's it's not very good um mostly in terms of its passivity um and its incapability of allowing like disability doesn't exist within an embodiment of its characters it exists in the space between those characters and only acts as an aesthetic means of communicating an aesthetic means of communicating a plot point of communicating uh one of the weird like random bits of magic that they have in this movie like like it's only it, it is it is applied for its use value and its use value is unto the imagination of a capitalist realist society aka dog shit End of speech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I, I find it I find it so interesting that like Aubrey 
gets gets kidnapped and then her twin experiences this this stigmata these phantom pains right she literally has her part of her arm and part of her leg cut off as part of like a like a psychic connection between dakota and Aubrey. right uh D- dakota is found near near death on the side of the road and taken to a hospital and it's no stretch to say that the only reason she receives any meaningful health care is because people assume that she's this rich girl from the suburbs mm-hmm. you know in 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 a crueler world in the world that we embody like you know like people someone at the hospital would have made the decision that her life isn't worth saving she said hospitals are for rich people yes yes that is exactly the quote i wanted to bring up you know we because um there's uh there's a character that she has sex with once (laughs) um and and of course the film but he winds up being really impactful later on his name is gilberto um and like but like you know aubrey's like bleeding out on the bus ride and and if you're poor you encounter medical problems like this you know you duct tape wounds back together you go home bleeding and like you know like uh everyone has been asking like oh how did this happen to you what happened like her boss at the strip club is just like just like oh what happened give me all of your information let me let me know what's going on and the guy on the bus is like yeah people get cut that's the world we live in and it creates this like I think accidentally, as you were saying, but it creates this really stark divide between like the lived experiences of people who can't buy healthcare and and rich people for whom that's never even a problem because money for them isn't what money is for the rest of us. Yeah, absolutely. And the way, um, and like I say, I think you you're completely right, Kyle. The way this film instrumentalizes um, disability as a plot point is is just like bullshit <laughs> like, uh, and and shows kind of a very for a film that's kind of basically about multiplicities of subjectivity those subjectivities are not that it's not really concerned with the fact Yeah, the way that the way that, that you know, this is a film that's about multiple multiplicity and subjectivity, right? But it ignores the fact that subjectivity is is connected and bound up within the body, mm-hmm. and the bodies bodies just get ignored. Basically, they are things to be cut up, but when you get past that, it's fine. Like, and that and that's just such a kind of dismissive and kind of disappointing aspect to what this film is trying to do. Well, yeah, it pushes up against the literally the best reading of the film, the Foucaultian reading, the soul's <laughs> body. <laughs> I mean, it works too well, but like in in terms of its, you're completely right. In terms of its, it it absolutely pushes over into the sadistic depictions because it does it, it is purposefully depicting graphic dismemberment in uh, several yeah. places. In terms of like as you're as you were nodding to earlier, the sort of signifiers of the popularity of torture porn and funny enough kind of on the back end of it too 2007 i was in college like yeah where uh, where it was already like in a kind of like straight to dvd sort of realm yeah like a saw five kind of space (laughs) or whatever i I have i have ultra hot takes on our critical appraisal of torture porn but i think those are gonna have to wait for an episode on torture porn (laughs) i have like some medium spicy takes on the genre as well uh 
Ash, you said you had a scathing take waiting for us, so drop it. Drop it. I What's... do. <laughs> now coming in on the featherweight category. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, accurate. Um, no, Me no, I was, I was, I was, I was waiting. I was waiting for this to be like my Yu-Gi-Oh trap card. I was waiting for someone <laughs> to say my magic word. And no one said it. No one said it while the record button was going. No one said good or bad in relation to the movie. And if you did, you lucked out and I missed it. <laughs> but I do I do have a take. And I'm glad we haven't fallen into this trap in our discourse for the movie. But like um, basically uh, my, my kind of like hot take with people who uh, pedestal David Lynch is thus. And that's a reading of the Lynchian is kind of more so than anything informed by class, right? David Lynch is a master of his craft, but that has come at the cost of being subsumed into the upper echelons of quote-unquote highbrow art. Highbrow being a term that uh, is derived from the classist and racist pseudoscience of phrenology, right? This film clearly wants to be in dialogue with a lot of specific Lynchian works, including Inland Empire. We mentioned Blue Velvet, also Mulholland Drive. But to reduce I Know Who Killed Me to a bad David Lynch film is to render art criticism into moralistic terms. Hmm. And when we do that work, we, uh, we must ask whose moralism we are being subsumed into. What we can do is discuss technical aptitude, meaning what is accomplished by these various aesthetic choices, uh, what we uh, what we must always refuse to do is the work of our capitalist masters. All good art is lowbrow. It only becomes highbrow when the gatekeepers of opinion recognize that a piece of art is both a saleable product and amenable you and uh, amenable to their views and material goals. We, as art critics, to use so vulgar a term, must do more than cast off the yoke of that discourse. We must throw the tastemakers from their carts and burn the very wood they are built of while relearning to discuss the emotive, effective, technical, and the personal. Capitalism isn't just an economic model. It is a way of relating to the world, and we must cast it from our hearts. And that includes the good people who all panned this film without giving it any ounce of critical thought beyond saying it's a bad David Lynch movie. Kill the film critic in your head. (laughs) (laughs) The, the real the real prison that we're all trapped in is bourgeoisie film criticism. <laughs> well, I mean, so I hope everyone at home listening heard what I heard too, which is that Ash agrees with me that if you tacked about 30 minutes on to the original ending of this movie and make it about the real Aubrey uh, and then go beyond that, it would have been considered a cinematic masterpiece um, at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> no, I... Uh, I just, sorry, bad joke. The Ash, I, uh, I, I honestly I, agree, though. I, <laughs> I mean, kind of, I, well, here, here's the thing. There is, there is, a there is something buried in this film that, in its sincerity and earnestness, that like declares to me that it is like ex- there are the expressions and the uh, the the there are the gestures and the expressions of an individual attempting to sort of sort of like bubble up from underneath in the same way that the sort of like secondary layer that we talked about earlier and comparing it to David Lynch in the way that that is, it, it's not just like peeled back, it's ripped out and pulled directly as it, it's two single objects that directly intersect with one another as they're pushed into occupying the same space. So everything just kind of 
scatters everywhere. And all you can see is just this like sort of like splatter blue all over everything. That's the <laughs> the only like the only like consistent signifier that it's able to like cling to that other people seem to be able to see as well. If like I don't know like if I'm trusting my original reading of the film and that we're kind of seeing it, you know, that that the the truth of the film is expressing itself through its protagonists in spite of how the film is treating them, then the blue's there. And so it's just like, well, if if all we have is blue, then we don't have much. But what we do have is we know we have a big mess in front of us that is attempting to any attempt at like individuality, expression or meaning, which I think those can necessarily be good things, are all subsumed either one under the cynicism and the perspective of this film uh, for those who are on the business end of the structures of society to you know embody the gestures of those societies in spite of their their a different in spite of their desires and despite in spite of themselves in spite of the various ontologies that they have sort of like fit within themselves are in are instead like not just like forced into the structure and if i go back to my the foucaultian says not just forced into the prison and put in front of the panopticon which is what foucault was using to describe uh early modern imprisonment and control up through the early parts of the modern period but instead like what Foucault was saying about the more his contemporary period and our contemporary period that it's not enough just to trap them in the structure and then to bring you to the inside to where you can see everything in the way that a David Lynch movie would in like in in how it plays out as a, on a stage in front of you uh, it's a 3D play that moves you forward and sideways and all of this stuff to where you can stand in the environment. So with this instead, it's just all ripped up to shreds and like scattered at your feet uh, in, in a sense that you're still lived within these embodying experiences, but it's all just kind of swirling around in this big like cyclone of nonsense that is yeah. – like it, it, it is so remi- it reminds people so much of their historical contingency while it simultaneously saying you fucking suck and alienating you. And it's it's so interesting. And like, I think more than anything, Ash, it, it deserves, as you're saying, that this the the the, the systematized knowledge of bourgeois movie criticism took decontextualized this movie to the point where they made a movie that Lindsay Lohan wasn't there for a lot of, and they literally had to put her face on a body double at one point because she was going through much, so much shit and said that because that movie didn't make money, it ruined her career. Like what? Like that, that's a leap in logic in some ways, if you interrogate it, even right? like five seconds. Uh, yeah, this is yet think- more, more evidence for my thesis that people who, don't understand historical materialism, don't know how to review films. <laughs> uh, that's a scientific fact. Yeah, scientific fact. Marxists make the best film reviewers. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the true scientific materialism is historicized <laughs> film review. <laughs> the genealogy of Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Marxist Lohanist. That's, that's what I mean when I say ML. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I think um, 
to, to, to earnestly jump off from that point and, and just to say one one last thing about the filmmaking before we jump into our final point and wrap up a, a lengthy episode. <laughs> um, but, but I would say that like Lindsay Lohan went through this movie while struggling with addiction, while while having appendix surgery, while having that surgery get infected on top mm-hmm. of personal problems and other issues. Like, yep. let's, you know, all, all of these film critics who are like, oh, Lohan's acting is so flat in this movie. Let's let, let, let's see you write movie reviews while going through all that. And, you know, and, like and actually she's she's the best performance in this by like, oh, hands down. By, <laughs> by, like, Everyone else looks like mild reality and compared. They yep. all look like the they all look like a level of uncanny valley. Like they're the 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 uh, Tom Hanks's character in the Polar Express. Like they're yeah. all like mm-hmm. these non-humans that are just weird and stuff. And I'm like, I'm sympathizing with the central character of this movie. And part of that is what Lindsay Lohan is doing. Yeah, 100 percent in defense of Lindsay in defense. Of Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and then like for for the for just a quick comment about like lynchian filmmaking like L- lynch is a filmmaker of liminal spaces he loves doorways and passing through them right that's why in every lynch anything there are curtains that we move through constantly it's about passing from one space into another Th- this movie asks us a very complicated aesthetic question and that's what happens if you went into david lynch's world and you just tore down all the curtains and opened all the doors at once and then you had that cacophony just soak you and I think, like on a technical level, the only thing that fails for me is it doesn't embrace the chaos that that re- that it kind of represents in its central question. I I want a sequel where Dakota and Aubrey go on a road trip through like a weird <laughs> psychedelic Amer- America, like catching serial killers and like doing revenge murders. That's what I want. Oh my god! I need I need that so bad. Because <laughs> I because I agree I agree that if it was going to, I I actually think it it does not. Uh, there's a difference between binaries and liminal spaces, and I think this film doesn't yes. quite grasp grasp that. This is a film of very stark binaries, I which agree, is yeah. why which is why I think it falls into often being quite prudish, moralistic. But if it had leaned in and embraced that weird you know i want an extended edition where there's an entire extra third act where they go hunting for other serial killers where they track down uh or you know i think that would have been amazing but i want to remake this movie the three of us need to remake this movie if you're listening Uh, lindsay we know that you listen to the show please (laughs) please get in touch (laughs) I'm, I'm going to text my close personal friend, uh, Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> yeah, Tell her I loved her in the canyons. Yeah, oh, the, oh, no, I, I just, great I just, modern Delezian uh, actor, <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> I, I, just, I just need to say this before it leaves my mind. I know who killed me too. <laughs> T-O-O-2. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that one just kind of like... Like that joke was like sinking into quicksand. You know how it's supposed to get you, it gets you real quick at the end. <laughs> uh, this is yet again. We we I I we're not arrogant. Ash and I about our takes, but we are never we have never been wrong about it. And once again, the HV Iron Law of the Universe, the uh ACAB, that the police absolutely have to be destroyed, root and branch, 
is just proven by this film. Uh, particularly the FBI, fuck the feds. Like <laughs> this is this is just a great film if you want to see uh, the FBI being completely useless. What, I thought um, someone was going to slip on a banana peel at one point. They're so. <laughs> yeah. It was so. Well, funny. I, I was expecting the guys from Criminal Minds to like walk out of the corner and just be oh. like the perp. The perp has an Oedipal complex, which means he would never use that particular weapon, and like just all this like, like uh, uh, cop magic nonsense. Ugh, I lo- and the stuff I love. I just John oh, and I have God. had an extended conversation about the beautiful terribleness. Honestly, the same kind of vibes that I get from this movie, I get from Criminal Minds. Yes, that is hundred percent. All of the amazing things that it's doing are none of the things that it was actually trying to do. It's just <laughs> so good. But yeah, it, Ash, it, we we developed this this kind of. I actually think we developed this this law that in horror, horror shows us the truth about what the police are really like. I think we came up with this in our very first episode on the original Black Christmas from a real deep cut. There. But we at every single point. At every single point, we have been completely and one hundred percent vindicated. Yeah, I mean, like you see it, you see it all through this movie. Like, what what is the function of policing in this film? It is not to protect either Dakota or Aubrey or the family or other young women from this killer. It's not to find this killer. It's not justice. It's not restoration. They they only torment Dakota Moss. That's all. All they do in this movie is is yell at her and and, and just be like, "You got to tell us the truth." And and like that's that's it. That, that's the, the full and complete expression of what they do. And then like who 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 solves the crime? A a a economically, socially, uh, ability or like like per- person living with a disability, right? By ever by so many angles, Dakota has to deal with the worst of what society has, right? And and she's the one who figures this shit out. <laughs> And, well, I mean, the the film is so blatant in the ability of the FBI and the police that not only do you see them berating a, a, a victim in the hospital uh, over and over again and accusing them of lying, uh, e- and even when they give you a very so, – there's one part of the movie, guys, it's not long, I promise. There's one part of the movie where they're sitting here and they're interrogating her in the, t- in the hospital, and uh, one of the cops says to her is just like – do you know, was he tall? Was he thin or whatever? And she's like, and you can tell they're frustrated that she's not giving them the explanation they're looking for. And then she all of a sudden gives a really specific explanation. Like he wore these specific, these bright blue surgical gloves or whatever. And the guy goes, are you sure? And it's just like, what the hell do you want from this woman? Like for real, like he, he immediately starts questioning that. And, uh, it's just, they, they, not only do they have these scenes, but then the, the movie takes four or five minutes to just show them in a police station all talking to each other about how the various ways they think that she's either lying or crazy. And like it, it's they taking literally so- have like what looks like um like a mugshot of Lindsay Lohan oh, and one of them scrolls delusional <laughs> across her forehead. Seriously, like like that that like we're talking about a movie that features extended uncut torture porn sequences yeah. and and the only the only scene in the movie 
that that got me to wince is when that fucking cop writes delusional across Dakota the, the picture of Dakota Moss's forehead so right evil every, everything else in this movie that? I was like eh, it's a torture porn yeah you, you you cut off the arms that's how it goes but like <laughs> I when, love when that you're Italian whilst watching I'm Italian torture porn Twitter I'm chopping right bodies here <laughs> Ma- mama mia but like <laughs> Um, a torture porn remake of the movie Mamma Mia would be incredible. But, but that scene, <laughs> that, that, that scene where, where he fucking writes delusional across her forehead was the most sickening thing in the entire fucking movie. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> on that note, AC80. The old, the old takes wells, the old take wells drying up. ACAB. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, but, but I mean, like, honestly, this movie is, is uh, calling it a lost gem would be a disservice to what this movie is right this this isn't this isn't some piece of amazing artwork that has been lost to the winds of time you know this this is a a troubled movie representing a conflicting and and deeply uh, uh complicated and, and even painful moment and in, in the lead artist's life and it's worthy of so much more discourse than what all these hack film critics put it to. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I, I I think it's, I think it, I think it, it reveals those problems that people run into when they don't. Film critics, not all, we, okay, we're all horror fans. We all, we all understand. Film critics do not understand how they don't know how to read horror movies. They don't understand how to review them. They don't know how to do good analysis of them in particular. But especially one that is so indicative of a very strange, continuously alienating, like con- constantly changing, shifting space that is like the 21st century. It embodies so much of its contexts, of its historical its historical contingency is made so plain that it's kind of criminal the way that they ignored uh, like doing something like I don't care if you have to give it a ranking and you give it a low ranking that's fine I don't I I, I think that that's silly but if you then engaged with the film in a way that was substantive. Uh, and that had demonstrated you had an understanding of the humanities and how culture works, then I think it would be, this should be, this should be, this should be a, a movie that people watch on random nights in random art theaters. I think, I think they'd like it. Yes. Any, any closing thoughts, John? I, um, no, I completely agree. And um, like, it's an, it's an interesting look at a, it's a cultural product of a time that, um, you you know, Carl said throughout, this is a very bleak film, and that bleakness is a reflection of how we treat a certain kind of celebrity that was that that Lindsay Lohan was the embodiment of at the time, and I think we we still do, and maybe that's part of why critics were so dismissive of it because to treat it honestly would involve assessing their own complicity yes. in that bleak, cynical treatment of someone who was just trying to do their job. Sadistic teleology. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fuck, fuck these film critics. Uh, solidarity with Lindsay Lohan. Always. 
always and always always and forever um and uh yeah labor kyle where where can our listeners find you uh one, one more time for everyone who is looking to uh, watch your youtube videos and give you all their bitcoins yes uh, you can deposit bitcoins at uh 42069 avenue in orlando um uh and there's a mail there's a mailbox on the side of the road that has a mustache on it you put them in there um and, and <laughs> it, if uh i make stuff on the internet at labor kyle on everything which includes uh twitch youtube and twitter um and i just have to embarrass the hosts i'm uh ghosts i mean hosts uh, i i ruined a bit, <laughs> hey. uh, uh, of the of this show for uh just a second to talk about how much of a privilege it was to be here i'm a fan as i've made clear to both of them in plenty of conversations um uh, and to pull back the curtain uh uh in the opposite lynchian uh, uh in the opposite sense of the lynchian way uh the hosts of the show are uh, people that i'm very very appreciative for uh appreciative of over the past few months in quarantine a lot of conversations and collaborations with very smart kind people that i very glad to have made friendships with. I love this show. Long live Horror Vanguard. Long live Ash and John. Long live Lindsay Lohan. Uh, and uh, I can sing the international. Do we have time? Do we have time? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. This has been an amazing episode. Uh, this has been so good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for going. Thank you both very much for having me. I had a fucking blast. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you come onto a podcast and be nice about us? I don't know. <laughs> like, I just like, I was just trying to, I'm like pumping my brakes the whole time. Just like, stop rambling. Just stop rambling. Uh, that was it, great. No, that, that was, okay. there was so much, there was so much good stuff in there. Thank you so much. Thank you both. I had so much fucking fun. This was so good. <laughs> I appreciate you, you, uh, uh, rolling with my y'all, you, you the two of you both roll with how I roll very well and are conducive to my eccentricities in a way that makes me feel appreciated, heard, and like not. I don't feel self conscious when I feel self conscious almost all the time, and that's very valuable. So I appreciate it. Sorry, I'm being nice still. I'll stop. No, I'll keep being nice. We are <laughs> this is we are a spooky podcast, but we are a sincere posting spooky podcast. Yeah, see, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think um. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. Any, any, this is, this is me. This is me about to close the door on this episode. Any, any last thoughts, any, any, uh, final, final statements, any last words before we are all, uh, horribly mutilated by time and capitalism. Watch out. For no, I think we're good. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well thanks for listening everyone uh, this has been one of our more awkward ways to end a show <laughs> there's blue all my stuff is blue I didn't notice what happened oh I didn't even make an Eiffel 65 joke everything god now damn it listen up. here's a story oh well, now listen up here's Ash, a podcast Ash, Ash is there any way that instead of like the horror vanguard theme, we can just use Eiffel 65. <laughs> <in this display. laughs> can we just do it just once? Just, God, that would just be like 30 funny. seconds. It would be so good. So somebody, somebody tweet at Eiffel 65 and see if they're willing to freely let us use their music. <laughs> <laughs>
remember, stay spooky. <laughs> Ha 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 